0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au If you'd like to open your Bibles to John chapter 7, we'll be picking it up in verse 25 this morning. And uh, Jesus, as always, is badly misunderstood by people. Almost every time he opens his mouth... People misinterpret what he's saying or get confused by it or reject it outright. There's a number of reasons for this, of course. Sometimes it's just that they haven't recognised the deeper implications of what Jesus is saying. Sometimes it's because he's talking about heavenly things to people who have only an earthly perspective, like Nicodemus, for example, back in John chapter 3. Sometimes, Jesus is making a veiled criticism of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and the only ones who actually get what he's saying are his targets. The parable of the tenants in Matthew 21 is a great example of that. Sometimes, it's because Jesus is being deliberately vague and confusing. Jesus himself told the disciples that the reason he spoke in parables is that uh, so that people would not understand? In fact, it seems that some sort of supernatural insight is generally required to make sense of his parables. Jesus told his disciples in Mark chapter four, when he was alone, those around, around with the, him with the twelve asked him about the parables, and he said to them, "To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables." So that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And so here we are again in John chapter 7, and Jesus continues to give confusing messages. Let's pick it up in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they are seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. We'll skip a few few verses down to verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet." Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. And then a few more verses down in verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So the question being asked is, where did Jesus come from? There's three answers to that question, actually. There's the answer of his residence as a child and a young adult in Nazareth. This is where those who hear him frequently get hung up. Then there's the answer of his place of birth in Bethlehem which Jesus never mentions here. You'd think this would be an ideal place to bring it up when they're debating his origins, but he keeps his mouth shut about it. And then there's the answer of his pre-existent place of residence in heaven at his Father's side. And that's the answer that Jesus gives in this passage. Now, Jesus lived in a time and in a society that didn't generally use last names. People often didn't have last names. They were frequently known by their place of residence such as Joseph of Arimathea or Paul of Tarsus. They may be known as someone's son such as Joshua the son of Nun or James the son of Zebedee. Or they might be known by their trade or some other distinguishing characteristic like Matthew the tax collector or Simon the zealot or John the Baptist. Sometimes they were known by more than one name, such as Peter, who was also known as Simon or Cephas. And just in case you were wondering, the name Christ is not Jesus' surname. It's a title like the Baptist or the Zealot. Now the people thought they knew where Jesus came from. We know where this man comes from, they say. He is Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph and Mary. Now that means, in their eyes, Jesus is just a yokel from a hick country town in Galilee. Now Nazareth was no wealthy city, it was no trendy metropolis, it was no tourist destination. Nazareth was a dirt poor farming town, a dot on the map in Galilee that no one but the locals cared about. You remember back in John chapter 1 when Jesus called Philip to follow him? Philip promptly took off to find his friend Nathanael, saying, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael's response is telling. He says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now that's the sort of opinion many people had of Nazareth. But Philip said to him, Come and see for yourself. It's no wonder really that people didn't put much stock in Jesus. He came from Nazareth of all places and he hadn't studied under any recognised teacher. What would this man know about anything? How can he be anyone special? We know his parents, we know his brothers and his sisters. There's nothing special about anyone in that family. You know me and you know where I come from, Jesus responds. Does he say that to agree with them? As in, yes, you're correct, you do know me, and yes, I do come from Nazareth. Now, I don't think that's really the way Jesus is responding here, because in the next chapter, in chapter 8, Jesus tells the people that you don't know me, and you don't know my Father, in verse 19. Or does he say it a bit sarcastically, maybe, like, you think you're pretty smart, don't you? You really think you've got me worked out. You really believe Nazareth is where I come from, don't you? Or it could be that he says it to encourage them to look a bit deeper, a bit harder at his ancestry. Are you so sure you know where I come from? Maybe you should dig deeper. Ask some more questions. Find out for yourself. After all, It's not like Jesus' ancestry couldn't be found out by anyone who had a desire to research it. The Jews were meticulous at keeping ancestral records. Or, if the people didn't want to go to the trouble of digging into the genealogies, they could have simply asked him. But it seems no one bothered to find out. Everyone was content to judge by appearances, which was exactly what Jesus warned them not to do in the last line of our text from last week. So the first stumbling block that the people from, uh, for the people was that Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee, and the Christ won't come from Nazareth, or anywhere in Galilee for that matter. Therefore the logic goes, Jesus cannot be the Christ, no matter what he says and no matter what he does. They were so determined to reject Jesus that they had no interest in researching his claims and his family tree. In fact, poor old Nicodemus, when he tries to get Jesus a fair hearing down in verse 51, uh, finds the religious leaders raining down their fury and their contempt on him too. Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, respected man, respected leader, And they accuse him of being a hick from Galilee too. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee, they tell him. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story, we might say. Because there were, in fact, some important prophets that came from Galilee. Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Jonah, perhaps Nahum. They were all from Galilee. And there is no way that the religious leaders didn't know this. But have you ever noticed that angry people aren't interested in truth? People who have already made up their minds don't want to know the facts. They don't want to be corrected. They would rather die in their error than admit they might have got it wrong. Some things never change. In verse 27 they say we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears no one will know where he is from. There seems to be a belief at the time that the Christ, the Messiah, will appear out of nowhere. This is another stumbling block for them. It prevents them from accepting Jesus as the Christ. No one seems to know for sure where this belief came from. Certainly when Jesus was born around 30 years ago, The chief priests and the scribes knew where the Christ would come from. They told King Herod that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So Herod, of course, promptly sent his soldiers down there to slaughter all the infant boys, lest this child grow up to challenge him for his throne. If the religious leaders cared to, they too could have discovered that Jesus was born right there in Bethlehem. It may not have been proof that Jesus was the Christ, but when you combine it with all the other evidence, with all his claims, it would have made a pretty compelling case. Anyway, this belief may have come from verses such as Malachi 3 verse 1 where it reads, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. Clearly that didn't apply to Jesus. Jesus had been around for 30 years. Jesus had been to the temple many, many times. Therefore, Jesus can't be the Christ. But Jesus brushes all that speculation aside. I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus tells them again, where he comes from. He comes from God. He hasn't exactly been secretive about this. Here's just a small sampling of 20 or more times that Jesus has made this claim just in the first half a dozen chapters of John's Gospel. In John 3.17 it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 5.43 Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. In John 6.41 the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And in John 6.61, Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Jesus has made no secret of where he comes from. But of course the Jews don't want to accept his testimony. They've already made up their minds about him. And Jesus has the gall then to accuse them, the experts in the scripture, of not knowing God. He who sent me is true, he tells them, and him you do not know. It's almost as if Jesus is deliberately trying to antagonize them, to infuriate them. And it works. They were seeking to arrest him, it says in verse 30, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now there's an encouragement for us in this verse. Jesus knew full well that his days were numbered. He knew his arrest and his trial and his execution were rapidly approaching. But not yet. There's a time for everything in God's perfect plan. Solomon wrote back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. In God's good and perfect plan, there is a time for everything. Nothing happens outside of God's plan and God's timing. You see, just at the right time, Paul wrote, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Not a moment too soon. Not a moment too late. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that until his hour comes, he can't be touched. He can go about doing what needs to be done without fear right up until the moment when his hour does come. And when that time comes, about six months from now in our text, he will go willingly to that cross. Then, and only then, will they be able to take his life away from him. But it's not that they take his life away from him against his will. For he is still in total control, all the way through, the trial and the crucifixion. Don't you think, he says, that I could call on my Father and he would send more than 12 legions of angels now? Jesus could have pulled the pin any time he wanted to. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that says this must happen? No one can take Jesus' life until his hour has come. And the same thing applies to us. When we're following God's will, no one can take our lives until our time has come, until we have completed everything that God has prepared for us to do. Take heart, friends, and be encouraged. Your hour has not yet come, and no one can touch you until that time comes. In Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowds muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now some in the crowd were sure that this must be the Christ. Surely the signs he was doing were evidence enough. And yet so many of them believed in him. What sort of faith they had, though, we can't be sure. Was it a saving faith? Or was it just a greater interest they had in him than they had before? They all abandoned him later on, so the depth of their faith is questionable. Now, John frequently records that the people believed in Jesus, but rarely, it seems, with a saving faith. For most people, their faith was founded on the miracles he performed, not on the words he spoke. So if their faith is based on miracles, what will sustain their faith when the miracles stop and when the miracle worker dies? I'm not sure. But when Jesus' hour comes, they all abandon him. It's not until the day of Pentecost, when Peter Preak begins to preach the word, that many are cut to the heart and actually believe for salvation. Then in verse 33, we read a disturbing passage. Jesus said to them, I'll be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Now this is more than just Jesus predicting his death. This is Jesus' warning of eternal condemnation. This is Jesus telling the people that they only have a limited time to put their trust in him for their eternal salvation. Now one of the glories of the gospel, as we know, is that no one is beyond its reach. The good news of rescue to be found in Jesus Christ is available for anyone, rich or poor, famous or ordinary, good person or wicked, sophisticated or uneducated, male or female, every tribe and, tongue and nation without exception and without distinction is invited and is welcomed by the gospel but it would be a mistake to then assume that we can ignore the gospel until we are ready for it that we can have our fun now and turn to christ later in life for rejecting him now may set us on a path that takes us so far away from him and sets our hearts so hard against him that we will reject forever his offer. Do you doubt that that is so? There are plenty of instances in the Bible of, of people who realize the error of their ways too late and could never return. Judas is the most obvious one. Matthew 27 tells us that When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money in the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. There was no salvation for Judas. Even though he walked for three years with Jesus, his heart had wandered so far that he couldn't return. The book of Hebrews tells us that Esau, after rejecting his birthright, changed his mind about it too. But it was too late for him as well. Hebrews 12.17 in the Amplified tells us, For you know that later on, When Esau wanted his inheritance of the blessing he was rejected for there was no way to repair what he had done no chance to recall the choice he had made even though he sought for it with bitter tears. The prophet Amos warned in Amos chapter 8 Behold the days are coming declares the Lord God when I will send a famine on the land not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There's a dreadful passage in Jeremiah where the Lord declares he's had enough of the hypocrisy and the rebellion and the presumption of the people. And he says to Jeremiah the prophet Therefore this is what the Lord says I'm about to bring disaster on them From which they won't be able to escape They'll cry out to me But I won't listen to them Therefore do not pray for this people Or lift up a cry or a prayer on their behalf For I will not listen when they call to me In the time of their trouble Passages like this are multiplied in the Bible. Consider the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were prepared for the coming of the bridegroom and five who were unprepared for his return. The unprepared five found the door shut to them and the bridegroom said to them, Truly, truly, I do not know you. They had the same opportunities as the five who prepared. But they wasted that opportunity, and the door was closed. To delay in responding to the call to put your trust in Christ is dangerous. You may never get another opportunity. And I don't just mean that you may die before you get another chance. I mean that your heart might become so hard that you can never undo the damage you've inflicted on yourself. It happened with Cain when he slew his brother Abel. It happened with Esau, as we've just heard. It happened with Pharaoh, who hardened his heart a little bit more with every plague, until his hardness led to his own destruction. It happened with so many of the Jews as they travelled through the wilderness after escaping Pharaoh, and died in that same wilderness. It happened with Judas. Don't assume that it is safe to put it off until later on. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, Jeremiah wrote. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. For as Jesus warns us in the next chapter of John's Gospel in John 8, 21, he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus Jews said, will he kill himself, since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? And he said to him, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. If I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins. That is the dreadful consequence of brushing aside the claims of Jesus Christ, of ignoring the call to put your trust in Him. There may come a day when His offer of grace is withdrawn. If you turn your back on Him for long enough and often enough, that offer, that free offer, may just be revoked. And you'll only have yourself to blame. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 2. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. There is the very real prospect of eternal condemnation. In spite of what many people today think, God is not only a God of love, he's also a God of justice and a God of wrath. I read something recently that I thought was quite timely. The author said, the favourite notion of some modern theologians that all mankind are finally to go to heaven cannot possibly be reconciled with what Jesus says here in John 7. Men may please themselves with thinking it is kind and loving and liberal and large-hearted to teach and believe that all men and women of all sorts will finally be found in heaven. One word of our Lord Jesus Christ's overturns the whole theory. Heaven is a place, he says to the wicked, where you cannot come. It's an interesting quote and it pretty accurately describes the state of much modern Christianity. We have a Christian friend who believes just that, that everyone will get into heaven. But Jesus makes it clear here in John chapter 7 that that's a lie. What makes the quote even more interesting to me is that it was written by the Bishop J.C. Ryle about 150 years ago. Some things never change. About six months after the events that we've been reading about, Jesus will be crucified. Three days later, he'll rise from the dead. He'll spend several weeks with his followers, preparing them for the next stage of their Christian walk. Then he'll ascend back to, sit, to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, where he belongs. One day he'll be returning. One day he'll be coming back to judge the living and the dead. He'll be coming back to determine the eternal destiny of every single person who ever walked the face of the earth. And every single person will either hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and enter into the joy of your master, or they will hear, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Which would you rather hear? No one is excluded from the call to put their trust in Jesus Christ. No one is excluded from his call to have faith in him to be saved. But there are no guarantees that that call will still be there when you finally get around to taking it seriously. It may be too late by then. One thing that is certain, though, is that if you hear his call today, if you respond to his call today, you will be saved. The gospel guarantees it. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus promised his followers, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a promise that will never fail. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that that the call to put our trust in Jesus Christ rings out so clearly from the pages of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that you offer that call to every man, woman and child on the face of this planet in every age, from every circumstance, from every geographic location, from every tribal ancestry. That call is for them as well, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you open our hearts and our minds to hear and receive that call. To learn that Jesus Christ is not just Jesus of Nazareth, not just Jesus born in Bethlehem, but he is Jesus the Christ come from God, pre-existent, From all eternity. And Lord we thank you. That your promises will never fail. That when you say that those who trust you. Will be saved. We can be certain that they will be saved. That we will be saved. Lord I pray for those who think that. It's safe to put off until later in life turning to you. Lord, I pray that you will not shut the door on that offer to them. You will not allow their hearts to become so hard, so set, so deaf to your call that they can never come back from it. Lord, would you be patient with them Would you be patient with our family, with our friends, with our workmates, with our neighbours who have not yet responded to that call or maybe not yet heard the call? Would you be patient with them, Lord? And would you open their hearts, their minds and their ears to hear you speak, Jesus? To hear you say come to me all you who weary and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Would you open their hearts to hear that Lord. That rest is found only in you. That salvation is only in you. I thank you Lord for the work you have done in our hearts. Would you strengthen our trust in you every day in every circumstance, in every difficulty. Would you cause us to lift our eyes to heaven and see you seated at the right hand of God the Father, welcoming us into his presence. Thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for the work you do through your word. And pray that you continue to do that for us and our family and our friends. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.